Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Bing Chen. Bing is an incredible guy. He is the president and co-founder of Gold House, but has accomplished more in a relatively short period of time than just about anyone I know. And Bing is, you and I both know a fair number of people. Um, so those are a very specific set of word choices. And in this case, I think wholly applicable. I wanna go back uh, to sort of the early days, Bing, but you just had a big, big announcement about Gold House Ventures. I know you've been on the road. Uh, there's been a lot of press about it. So uncharacteristically for great minds, I'd love to start with the present and dive right into the uh, very recent announcement around Gold House Ventures. Hello, Shagner, first and foremost, thanks for having me. Um, I also feel like your words are, are overly gratuitous and probably inaccurate because of it. So <laughs> thank you for the compliment nonetheless, I'll tell my mom. Um, no, we're, we were so excited uh, uh, two days ago to announce Gold House Ventures, which is the first definitive fund focused on investing squarely on Asian and Pacific Islander founders in the United States. Uh, and of course, there's a broader vision from there. Uh, the impetus was several fold. Uh, one is according to Harvard Business Review, our community is the least likely to be promoted to management of any. Uh, two is if you look in certain industries where we punch well above our employee weight, notably in technology, we're about a third of the workforce, but half in executive ranks and single digits in the C-suite. So there's a clear sort of disparity there. Uh, and then the third piece that I think is really important is uh, I never want to build a world that just supports a single supremacy, as we'll call it. Said another way, I don't want a world formed by Asians. Uh, I think that's backwards, weird, self-segregationist, Pangea-like, all the things that we are not, uh, nor anything that we should be. Um, but I do believe that in order to help everyone, you have to first help yourselves or put yourself in a position to help others. Uh, said another way, you can't give unless you have. Uh, and so my hope is that by investing in these founders and teaching them how to hire equitably, how to engage multicultural customer segments, that we'll be able to raise the floor for everybody. It's an incredible achievement. How long have you been working on this thing? This doesn't happen overnight. Uh, I'm going to sound really spoiled, so don't be mad at me, Lord Schechter. Uh, we've been thinking about this for a while because it's part of our 10-year, three-phase plan at Gold House. But the fund, to be honest, we just started raising in December. It was actually quite easy. Um, and uh, I think it's because, one, uh, just the thesis and construction is very thoughtful. Um, this should be a top decile performing fund, uh, but it also has a great social impact angle where 100% of my personal profits will go back to the nonprofit community. Um, second is it does sit on the shoulders of what we've successfully built at Gold House. So there's just a lot of good juju there, I think. Uh, and then third is, I think we're just in a moment in time where people are trying to find productive ways to tackle systemic racism and bias. Um, and we've talked about this many times previously, but you can try to sort of, you know, poo-poo what exists and try to correct it, or you can just build a new world. And this fund, I think, is emblematic of just building a new world and not accepting a thesis that we've been handed. And Bing, what brought us together was some mutual friends at the 3AF and a desire that we had um, to not only do something on the scale like what we accomplished in the fall with our partners at YouTube and the Nelson Mandela Foundation focused on the black community going up to Harlem and the Apollo for a magical night uh, headlined by Mary J. Blige, but to do things that are equally ambitious reaching out to all the parts of America, the Hispanic population, the LGBTQ population, and the AAPI part of America, which often gets left out of the conversation. And I think we gravitated towards each other and became 
you know, sort of connected and bonded over that shared recognition that uh, there's a lot going on here and uh, in the Trump administration in particular, where the Asian population on the whole was demonized. Um, and we've all seen the incredible random acts of violence, incredible in a bad way, uh, against Asian people, images we've seen on, you know, older people being belted, you know, standing at a bus stop, you know, having done nothing other than being who they are. You're leading the charge in many ways um, to reverse that, to shine a positive light on the achievements uh, and to stand up for your community. And I really love what you're doing there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, I, I feel like none of us are sufficient nor, how do you say, yeah, I guess I, none of us are sufficient in trying to tackle this and it feels Sisyphean always. Um, but, uh, but the good news is that we are fighting. Uh, and I feel like the, the other benefit is you mentioned so many other multicultural groups. Uh, a hit against one of us, as we all know, is a hit against all of us. And so it's been really great to see everyone rally around us. It's been great to see candidly the API community step up finally to support other multicultural groups in the past few years, uh, whether it's in the great summer re-reckoning of uh, Black Lives Matter or otherwise. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we have a long way to go, I think, collectively. We do indeed. Okay, so let's, let's dial the clock back a little bit. I know you went to uh, a great, great school at the University of Pennsylvania, and you had some interactive marketing in the mix academically. But as I recall, your focus was creative writing and literature. Uh, and I'd love to talk about that and how that background in a different, probably unexpected way, because I know you went on, you know, largely in tech, but that leap from where you started to where you ended up and how that background really helped lay a foundation for you, because I'm guessing it did. Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking because at face value, creative writing will ensure that you're on employment basically after graduation. Um, but um, no, I think since I was a boy, my dream, as you know, is to be the existential Walt Disney. Um, so how do we build the largest platforms, whether it's we invest in them or we own them ourselves, that make everyone's dreams come true at a practical level? Um, and so when I entered UPenn, um, that, that, was, that was still the vision. Um, and I looked around and said, okay, well, what major is going to set me up best? Uh, and there was sort of a bunch of inputs. Uh, I think one was... Uh, I that was the beginning where students started to learn that there was very little relevance between your major and your post-graduation job. Um, you had many lawyers, for instance, majoring in bio. Uh, you had a lot of bio majors going to law school, so forth and so on. And so I, I think this was the, the increasing wave of that. Second is that being said, all of my heroes who graduated from UPenn in Hollywood, whether they're Rich Ross, the chairman of Walt Disney Studios, Stacey Snyder, the CEO of DreamWorks, uh, uh, Mark Platt, who accounted for too much of my time with reality TV, uh, all of them actually had creative writing on grad majors. And so when your heroes have these, you kind of have to follow suit. Um, and then I think the final piece that I slowly learned with sort of more maturation experience over those four years was creative writing is not only how I think, but I also think one of the most transferable skill sets, uh, because effectively what you have to do is take some form of abstraction, uh, in my case, short prose or poetry, useless things, and distill them into something not only cogent, but practically employable. Uh, and is that not what we're all trying to do in life? We're trying to take just artifice because most of what exists on earth is artifice, it's human created and make it compelling and useful. Uh, and so I actually found it to be incredibly valuable there. Um, you got to the punchline. Thankfully, I, I didn't become unemployed during the height of the economic recession, uh, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, my mother breathed a sigh of relief. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it was probably one of the best decisions I made. Great stuff. 
Now, I know you started uh, as global head of creator development management at YouTube, sort of predating in many ways what we would define today. 10 years after you started as the creator economy, you were way, way ahead of it. I think that was before we really even knew what the creator economy was. But where, where were you before that? Because I couldn't find that. Oh, I was in college. Uh, that was my first job. Um, so I was, uh, okay. yeah, I got lucky. I was in a, I was in a Marissa Myers executive management program where they give 22 year olds way more budget and responsibility than any of us deserve. Uh, and some people definitely got, let that get to their heads. Um, but, um, no, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, I was the first creator marketing manager at YouTube worldwide, uh, when things like influencer marketing just didn't exist. Um, at least not in their modern form, of course, I'm sure like the Grecians or someone had a version of it, um, or the Greeks. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was an incredible ride. I, 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 I luckily got it and chose it because I thought that YouTube was the 21st century articulation of the media conglomerate. Uh, instead of having walled gardens where, you know, a few high horse corner offices decided what creative mattered, uh, what platforms mattered, what products mattered. I thought instead it was our job to build the space where others could tell us. Uh, and of course, over five years, we didn't do that uh, in spades. Um, it's funny you mentioned creator economy. I actually now just remember the first time I remember hearing that was in 2011. Uh, we were sitting down with the PR team. Uh, it was me and uh, this, name, uh, this PR lead named Annie. Um, and she had mentioned that we were talking about creators too creatively and that we needed to start thinking about these people's businesses um, because it was the first time where we had um, a healthy number of people making over $100,000 a year on YouTube, which depending on how you slice the economy is is definitely a meaningful living um and uh i remember she's saying that we shouldn't just call it the creator network or creator ecosystem we should actually call it the creator economy um and by no coincidence as far as i know that was the first time it was actually published in press i think we went to new york times with this um and and now as you just pointed out you know a decade plus later the world is trying to figure out even more you know what this means and all that um so yeah it was an incredible ride and you also were involved in some early green marketing initiatives before that was a hot topic. Yeah, I, that one was definitely, uh, I'm not gonna sound, I sound so silver spoon, but I swear to God, I'm not. Um, but uh, no, that one's definitely handed to me. Um, so the way the rotational program at Google worked is it's two to three years. First year you get placed in one place, second year you get placed in another. Uh, I am incredibly shallow and care about useless things. And so I definitely wanted to go to YouTube, um, but Google said, no, you should actually go to green energy marketing, crisis response, things that actually save lives. Uh, and so I got to learn an incredible amount about climate change and so forth at the highest levels, uh, led Google's World AIDS Day effort. Um, and, and it was incredibly instructional, I think. Um, I think one of the hardest things that I reconciled there that I think we all have to reconcile is what is actually, what is the world most need versus what are your gifts that you deserve to employ? The world, of course, most needs us to reverse climate change, for us to uh, 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 save literal human lives uh, through reformed healthcare systems and so forth. Um, but unfortunately, that's just not how I'm wired. Those are not where my gifts are. Um, and so I think I, I effectively left that after the first year, went straight to YouTube uh, and built you know, this creator economy as the world now knows it, uh, which we can argue all day long whether that's actually useful or not. But I do think that the way that we are seen and the way we can sort of commercially sustain uh, visible ambition is the first step to sustainable behavioral change. Um, maybe I'm wrong, who knows? Well, let's, you have the benefit of perspective here uh, from what you were doing back then, literally 10 years ago with the creator development team. We now are living in a world dominated by uh, creators and influencers. What's your take on where it started 
give or take 10 years ago and where it is now? Oh, super easy. Um, there were uh, there were a couple of things that that, that really sort of perpetuated this. Um, so uh, the first would be the creator economy was really started by marginalized communities. And I don't mean just sort of racially or gender orientationally uh, marginalized communities. I mean, those that just didn't have a voice in general in traditional media. So film and TV. Um, back in 2010, uh, it was not a foregone conclusion that candidly non-white faces would work on screens. Um, and so what you saw was a lot of these marginalized communities perpetuate MySpace, Zynga, Facebook, and so forth, trying to build up audiences on other screens because they just were shut out from the canonical system. And so by no coincidence, we actually saw that a lot of the top categories on YouTube, for instance, whether they're beauty or comedy or film, were actually dominated by the Asian, the Black, the LGBTQ, in particular, three communities. Uh, I'll pick on Michelle Fawn, for instance, who's someone just that I, I've always long admired. Michelle dominated beauty. Nowhere else in the world would you have seen, at a global level, an Asian woman, specifically a Southeast Asian woman, specifically a Vietnamese woman, dominate the beauty industry or notions of beauty. Um, so that was number one. Second was connectivity. As broadband started to become more prominent as well as price accessible, as the proliferation of mobile devices made the access to content and experiences more readily accessible, so too you saw the rise of these folks. Uh, third was creative constraints. This was, of course, the golden age of apps, of sort of other platforms, where you just saw a lot of people thinking that abundance was abundance and trying new creative uh, sort of things and, 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 and finding footing there. Um, so anyway, so those were sort of, I'd argue, sort of the three biggest progenitors of why the creator economy happened. Um, the things that I think cemented it and made it arrive, I call it the trinity. Um, so these are by no coincidence actually what any creative, whether you're a $370 billion market cap company known as the Walt Disney company, uh, or you're an individual musician in Bangalore care about. Um, they are fame, fortune, and creativity. Fame, of course, meaning you need a large, engaged audience while also being taken credibly in the industry. Two is you need to reduce costs and, of course, jolt your revenue, ideally a multifaceted form of revenue because your anchor form, whether it's you're a filmmaker and it's just your film or YouTube, you're just on YouTube channel, typically that's not where the majority of your income comes from or should come from. Uh, it comes from downstream opportunities. And then third is, of course, creative prowess. You actually have to be good at what you want to do if you expect longevity. Uh, by no surprise, we find that the creators or influencers with short half-lives are those with no discernible, sustainable talent. Right. Um, uh, it does not take a lot of talent to breathe, uh, unfortunately, and or just comment on things. Um, and so those that do stand the test of time, the Lindsay Sterlings, the Michelle Fawns, you know, so forth of the world, have other discernible skill sets. You have this great run and then you leave and you go on to be the co-founder and chief creative of Victorious. Let's talk about that. Yeah, it was an incredible promise. I'll call it that. Um, so the the CEO of YouTube, Dean Gilbert, who I, I really adored, uh, came to me and basically handed me what sounded like heaven. Uh, he knew that my dream was to be my own Walt Disney. I had grossly omitted and ignored my creative ambitions in um, in lieu of building sort of this more platform based ecosystem, uh, which I'm obviously very grateful for, but is only half the house. And so he said, Bing, I'll basically bring you what will be a venture backed, you know, very sexy startup. You'll be able to do your creative uh, within the safety uh, of sort of this technology platform. Uh, the TLDRs that did not happen. <laughs> so, and I signed an anti-defamation clause. So I'm not allowed to say too much, but I, I think what I'll, I'll say is one, 
Uh, I definitely still believe in the spirit of Victorious that we are now in a community economy. We are not in a creator economy anymore. I'm uh, happy to elaborate on that. Um, uh, my company at Gold House, as well as some of my other forthcoming companies will uh, further reinforce that, that fervor. Um, I think the second thing that I learned is that people build great companies, products do not. Uh, and so making sure that people around you, above you, below you and so forth are not only good hearted, but also can execute is the most important thing. Um, and then third, I think what I really reconciled that was very difficult for me was uh, I was always like a very supportive, fairly modest person at YouTube. Uh, I didn't have sort of direct reports and yet was still expected to quote unquote manage 55 leads that were twice my age, all at Harvard MBAs, each represented hundreds of people. Uh, and I thought did so very effectively. Um, but what at some point I realized was, uh, there is value to me being in the driver's seat because things happen quickly, they happen thoughtfully, they happen impactfully, and they happen ethically. Um, and when I'm not in the driver's seat, that does not always happen. Um, and I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I, I just mean I, I just mean it just doesn't happen. Um, and so I think I reconciled there. It, it is it was time to stop building someone else's dream yet again, and it was time for me to actually build my own because I do have deep conviction and clarity in what I'm here for. Um, and of course, we have now done that in spades, whether it's through Gold House or Om and, and through our forthcoming companies. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Let, let, let's stop for a moment because we're going to cover a lot more ground in terms of your role as an advisor to so many companies, including ByteDance. Uh, but you are a very driven guy. You're moving in the left lane on the highway, going way above the speed limit at all times. Where did that, where did that drive come from? Does it come from your parents? Did you always work as a young kid? Let's go back to the early days of Bing Chen. And how did this, how did this incredible force, this tornado that is Bing Chen get created? Tornado, tornado sounds destructive, though. It's funny. My, my nickname at YouTube, I had two. One of them was Hurricane Bing, uh, and so, <laughs> which I, I actually took offense to when I was 22, but I'm told it's because people just thought they should get out of my way, uh, which I, I think is probably a compliment. But anyway, um, neither here nor there. Uh, no, I, I feel like answering this is honestly like incredibly self-aggrandizing, but so I, I'd say probably default to you have to ask my parents, but um, I, I, as far as I know, one... Um, I do owe a lot to my parents. My parents came from incredibly modest means uh, financially from Asia, uh, our first generation, of course, and just had this relentless American dream and diligence uh, where they blended good ethics with delivery. And so I think I just saw that as emblematic of how the world should be. Um, to pick on my mother, um, I think so much of what has informed how I think about empowering, including women, comes from her because my father, unfortunately, passed away when I was 15. So I was effectively raised in a single parent household like you know, a fourth of us are, uh, and specifically a single mother household like most of us are in, in those single parent households. And uh, my mother uh, had to be a stay-at-home mom because no one else was going to take care of the kids. But in tandem, was also the highest paid woman in the state of Tennessee for a certain period of time. And so I think when that, in addition to diligence, when you see someone who's not only diligent in the workplace, but diligent equally, if not more, in the house household and also just emotionally available, I think it just makes you reimagine the type of person you want to be. Um, and so my drive is, is not just about work drive. It's about making sure my heart sort of leads in a very direct way. 
Um, I think the second piece is uh, my mother always says that I was really annoying when I was little. Uh, I was always really excited and really like just joyful. Um, and I think that comes from a couple of places. I think one is, it's just in my genetics because my mother always wanted to have kids. She was always really happy. And I, I think because of that upbringing, I, I go out of my way to find miracles and joy and resilience and everything. Um, every day I learn something and I make sure I learn something. Um, I giggle at stupid things. Uh, and I think that's just the way to live. And to paraphrase like what, and I know this sounds privileged, by the way, not all of us have this all the time, but, 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 um, but no, I, I, to paraphrase my, my favorite quote from Einstein, there are two ways to live your life as if everything is a miracle and as if nothing is. And, and I think that if we can live as if everything is a miracle, then more things become possible. Um, I think the other, uh, the biggest experience that made me reconcile this was when my father passed away. Um, my father was tried his best in the way he knew how, but ultimately was kind of an asshole. Um, he was really mean. Um, I, I only have maybe one memory of him smiling, and it was when we were fishing when I was 10. Uh, and the fishing, I felt like, was more about him than me. And so <laughs> so, or, or like us, as it were, um, and and seeing someone who is just upset constantly and negative constantly, again, probably for good reason. His job was just really rigorous. He was CFO of Fortune 500. I, I get that. I get it. Um, but but it's just not the way to live, you know. Um, all we have is what we know, and all we know is now. And if you're not going to think things are miracles or try, what are you doing here? Um, and so I think it just comes from that as well. Um, my life is not without trauma and all the things, you know, like I've had many brushes, real, very real brushes with death, unfortunately, at a young age. Um, so this doesn't come from like, I've only known sunshine. If anything, I've known the opposite, which I think is why I'm this way. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's where it comes from. That's a great answer. And, and I actually agree with you with one of the last things you just said, from adversity comes strength. Yes, yes. Every sun casts a shadow and the shadows create the sun. Um, yeah. Great. All right, that was, I'm glad that was a good digression. So let's talk about your work as an advisory board member. You've done that for a lot of companies over the years. The one that jumps out uh, off the page, of course, is ByteDance, uh, uh, the uh, parent company of TikTok. But I'd love to talk about your work as an advisory board member. We can talk about ByteDance or any of the other plethora of companies where you've served that role. Yeah, so the honest impetus of this was a couple fold. So one of my longtime mentors, uh, Judy Estrin, um, she was for the longest time the only woman on the board of the Walt Disney Company. She co-created the Ethernet. Um, so the way you and I are speaking, of course, is attributed to a woman. Um, but um, Judy once said to me, uh, I, I'm not going to age her, but uh, she once said to me that uh, a lot of her C-suite friends were trying to get on boards and they were failing when they were 60 because they were not on boards when they were 50. And so she said, if you want to be on boards when you're 60, you got to start when you're 50. And because I'm me, I said, okay, well, screw that. I'm going to start when I'm 30. Uh, so I can get on the when I'm 40. So that was one impetus uh, at a, a sort of practical level. Um, the second impetus, honestly, was after I left Victorious and decided I'm going to go build my own Walt Disney company, I threw myself into creative, uh, which I'm working on still and will debut later this year. Uh, when you throw yourself into creative, there is no A, recurring revenue stream in the early years. B is it's also a fundamentally different part of your brain, which I value, but I also really value my left technology scale mindset. And so I really did this not just to have recurring income, but also to maintain that left brain side that I value so much that I sort of, you know, cultivated and honed at YouTube. Um, so that was the real honest impetus of doing any of this. Uh, it's just because I didn't, you know, I, I like buying things beyond pizza and this was important for that. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I luckily, you know, uh, 
I don't know how to answer this without being self-aware. I, I luckily know a thing or two about the creator economy. Um, and so I had a lot of companies call uh, and they, A, they tried to hire me and I said, no, I'm going to try to you know do this thing on my own. Uh, luckily I did. Uh, but B, in lieu of being able to join their companies, can you actually advise us on how you built the creator ecosystem? So um, this is a very, very, very long list, um, but uh, you know it's everyone from ByteDance to the Spotify's to the Pinterest to the Snaps of the world, uh, all of which have done incredibly well, I think, in their own way with their own creator economies, with, with their own great teams. Uh, that was the impetus. Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the other benefit is I constantly am able to learn a lot, but I think the punchline is despite the differences in industry and product features and so forth, all law sort of cardinal law, humans are more concentric than we are different. And so ultimately creators still want the same three to six things in the same descending order worldwide, agnostic of again, category, feature, size, resources, and so forth. Uh, and those we can elaborate on if you want, but those are fame, fortune, creativity, um, uh, skill building, uh, connection with other creators on the platform and or in their industry of choice, and then finally recognition from the platform that they reside in. Great answer, Bang. So there's one particular entry uh, that our crack Great Minds research team uncovered that is a little bit different. You're, the common threads are companies in the tech space and the content space, moving into the media and the big screen content. But there's also an interesting entry around Korean barbecue. Can we talk about that? Yes, sorry, no, no, you're talking about. Um, so uh, because I'm from the South, I'm from Tennessee, I think that more is more. Uh, and that's especially true when it comes to food, especially it's true when it comes with sauces and deep fried food. Uh, so I just love buffets. <laughs> Uh, which I don't know. I just love buffets. We, we uh, all love buffets, baby. We all love buffets. And so seeing seeing Golden Crow go bankrupt during the uh, during uh, COVID was one of the saddest moments of my life. Um, and so that, that's all it is. Uh, it's really tough because we're no longer 22 or have the metabolism of 20 year olds. So uh, th this is a non sustainable diet for my more vain sort of aspirations in my body. But I don't know. I yeah. I, let's just say I have a lot of cheat meals every week. <laughs> No, but I saw somewhere that you were an advisor to a Korean grill. Oh, sorry. That's what you're alluding to. Kabunga. No, I'm I so sorry. Uh, also. I'm happy to talk yes, about yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, no, Kabunga is great. Kabunga, I don't know. Where do I, where do I begin? Um, so every year I, I try to, this is going to sound more formulaic than it actually is. I, I assure you it's a little bit more heuristically driven or at least equally heuristically driven. Um, uh, two years ago, I wanted to start learning CPG um, just because I admire people who create real things. Uh, I realized that everything I've created does not exist. It's literally artificial in film or in creator ecosystems and just you can't touch any of that and so it's not real uh and i realized well I, maybe i'm a fraud and so so i looked around i was like well i like to eat and i like to wear clothes most of the time and so i said i'm gonna learn how food works and fashion works um, and so uh, luckily and fortuitously, one of my buddies, John, uh, who uh, uh, was basically an investment banker, PE guy, was like, screw that life. I love food. I'm going to go make this Korean barbecue company and make it accessible for the masses. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, he has the most attended fast or most traffic fast casual Korean barbecue place uh, on the east side of LA. Uh, we're about to launch our own CPG product line, uh, which I'm so excited about. It's actually the first CPG brand I've ever designed. Uh, and I'm extremely proud of it. It's all Lord technology. I'll be sure to send it some to you. It's super delicious. Uh, but yeah, it's just been an incredible ride to learn about, you know, how CPG works, um, or in some cases does not work and <laughs> terrifies me. Uh, but yeah, that's one of my portfolio companies. But I think the through line through all the companies I support is, uh, one, 
is it supporting traditionally marginalized or multicultural folks? Because I'm just trying to rebalance the world for everybody. Second is, does it blend two different disparate entities? So in the creator ecosystem, we blended, of course, technology, media, and then advertising, and then now e-commerce in different ways. Uh, that is not, that was not, you know, a foregone conclusion um, 12 years ago. Uh, it was not obvious that these things would bridge in the way that they did. Uh, and so too, with this Korean barbecue company, we're bridging several different sensibilities, East-West, in, in this case, of course, Korea and the United States, um, specifically in the United States, Asian Americanism, uh, which is not the same thing as Koreans uh, or, or Korean culture, um, although there are concentricities, um, so forth and so on. So yeah, there, there is some consistency across these, but the impetus was I just wanted to learn uh, about real things. I, I love that story. You've also got quite a bit in the animation area and in gaming and specifically within gaming around sort of the next iteration of the web. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so to, to contextualize structure. So I think about my holding company in my life or, or, or rather my interest from my holding company in two ways. One is stories, the other is systems. So on the story side, the idea is how do we reshape beliefs, especially about marginalized folks so that they are seen as affirming and not villains or criminals and so forth. And I shouldn't even say they, I mean, I should say we. Um, second is systems. How do we ensure that there are platforms and products that can sustain positive behaviors and outcomes, particularly economically? And then the goals for all these to cross-pollinate. Uh, if you take another big step back, I would argue the Walt Disney Company and its five to six divisions is effectively set in this bifurcated structure. Um, so you have Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars, and so forth, as well as the Walt Disney Studios networks that are on the story side. You have theme parks, CPG, Disney+, Plus, International on sort of the system side. Uh, and so that's that's how I think about sort of all these companies and how they fit in our structure. Um, what you're talking about with animation, Baobab Studios is one of my favorite companies. We're a multi, I think we have now 12 Emmys. Uh, uh, we're the leading VR animation studio in the world. Uh, its co-founder is one of the former, uh, or excuse me, is the former chief creative officer of DreamWorks. Uh, the board includes everyone from the founder of DreamWorks to the co-founder of Pixar to the founder of Twitch. And then Bing, for some reason, uh, I think it's just because I'm loud uh, and they needed a token millennial. Um, but um, but no, with, I, the reason I love Baobab so much is uh, similarly, we are trying to not only affirm multicultural folks for the masses, so sort of a duality there. But secondly, is we're trying to bridge animation and VR at the highest levels beyond just gimmickry. Um, and so, so really excited about them and continue to be. Uh, on the Web3 side, I have quite a few interests here, um, specifically focused on NFTs and DAOs. Um, so my fund, Goldhouse Ventures, a healthy portion of our portfolio companies are indeed in Web3, uh, whether it's Binance, the biggest crypto exchange in the world, um, founded now by the, the wealthiest person of Chinese descent, um, CZ Zhao, um, or it's in Seashell, um, just trying to make it even more accessible. Uh, and then we've got a couple others on the way. Um, so a lot of the Web3 efforts I would look at as part of my systems efforts um, that we're still trying to learn. Um, I think my excitement on Web3 is, is at a philosophical level, how do we ensure that we have enough, per, or how do we say this? How do we ensure that the masses can indeed be as wise as we think they are um, to enable sort of mass growth? Um, the way I've built most of my companies is more sort of democratic regenerative. So Goldhouse is hilariously actually built like a DAO, uh, even though we're not actually a DAO. Um, so I think that's one interest. The second is I do and have always been excited by this new community economy that I'd argue it really sort of began about five to six years ago, um, whether it's through perpetuated by Discord or the Patreons of the world and so more and so forth. Um, and so NFTs and DAOs, I think, are sort of, you know, inextricably interlocked in this capacity um, to enable new sort of scalable opportunities for the community economy to rise. Great stuff, Bang. So interesting. Uh, can we talk about another company? And I, I know the product because dear friends of ours uh, uh, 
don't leave and don't ever take it off. Uh, don't leave home, I should say, without it. And then I think never take off their aura rings, which is quite a phenomenon. And I know you're a special advisor to the CEO, a little different. Not everybody may know about it. Can you tell us what it is and how you got involved? Yeah, where's the leading sleep tracker on the market? Uh, we found that you're, uh, actually you can uh, more reliably track uh, sleep habits, heart rate, and so forth through the finger as opposed to your wrist, which is where many wearables to date have existed. Uh, I got involved because the uh, now former CEO, he just stepped down, uh, Harpreet Rai, sort of called me a couple of years ago and said, we have this asset called Aura Rain, but we need to juice it on marketing as well as on the content side, which I would argue for a platform like Aura, and it is truly a platform now is half the battle. Um, there's great insights, but it kind of doesn't matter unless they're there's a recurring group of people who are cultishly sort of reinforcing its value, evangelizing its value, and so forth. Uh, my favorite memory on this that, that Harps and the team get a lot of credit for is uh, this was, uh, we wanted to perpetuate it through influencer marketing, but we just weren't in a place to sort of compensate a lot of influencers. And so we, we strategically sent it to a bunch of doctors of celebrities. Uh, and this happened over the course of many, many, many months. Um, and uh, we basically agreed that one day when one of these celebrities happens to wear it and the paparazzi happens to cover it, uh, we would call a sort of gossip rag to question what it is, go to an upmarket press outlet to affirm what it is, and then go to a mass outlet to proliferate it. Um, and so this is indeed what happened. We got this gift uh, years and years, years ago. I think it was in November, um, uh, I think maybe three years ago. Um, but uh, there was a picture of Prince Harry wearing an aura ring on his right ring finger. Uh, this was right after he and Meghan Markle had tied the knot. And everyone was speculating, why is he wearing another ring? Are they in an open relationship? Like, what is going on? Uh, and the Daily Mail, of course, picked this up. And uh, so we were like, I remember Harps called me that morning. He's like, you got to see this. It's starting to happen. And so we, we, we sort of brainstormed. We said, okay, well, who is the upmarket outlet we want to go to? The answer, of course, is Vanity Fair. Uh, and so we called Vanity Fair and said, we, need, we would love to collaborate with you and see if this you know, story can, can basically confirm that this is indeed an aura ring. They're not an open relationship, none of that sort of stuff. Um, that of course is what happened. And then we went to a mass publication and sort of the company spiraled from there. Um, so it was a really, really incredible moment, I think for everybody. It was one of those weird like things that you plan for and then lightning strikes and it just sort of snowballs. Um, but yeah, no, it's been, it's been so incredible seeing their rise and supporting, you know, Harpreet throughout his tenure. Uh, I'm super proud of them. They're one of my three now unicorns, um, which, uh, which I think is crazy to, Think about when given it's only been three to five years uh, for all of them. Um, but uh, but yeah, very, very proud of them. Great, great run, great product. Uh, our friends absolutely swear by their rings. They're very cognizant of their every every number, every metric uh, and and live by it. In some ways, it seems like what you did at Titan, democratizing active investment for the masses, Seems like that was sort of a, not a direct, but sort of an indirect predecessor in some ways to what you just launched, that notion of bringing money and resources to everyone. Can we talk a little about your work at Titan? Yeah, spiritually, it's definitely concentric. Um, so uh, I got involved in Titan. I had the privilege of doing so uh, because one of my like little brothers from college, Clay Gardner, is the co-CEO there uh, and called me early days and said, we basically just need a marketing like community content person. And so I just had the privilege of especially aggressively advising them in the first two to three years. Uh, they're now well north of a half unicorn. Um, they will go all the way. I'm extremely confident in it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the punchline was <clears throat> hedge funds have top decile performing returns uh, but those are inaccessible unless you're basically super rich. Um, and so they wanted to make that sort of a little bit more democratic while also empowering this sort of younger new generation 
shouldn't even say younger anymore because we're all, some of us are now 40. I'm not yet, uh, but, but, uh, but, uh, but empowering us to just be smarter investors. Um, and so uh, that is indeed what they've done. Um, and yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, making access to capital more accessible and thinking about how we can just educate people, not just in being better investors, but just being in being better humans, uh, I think is important. Um, and I think as you, as you know, very well, this new generation expects that, you know, we're not our parents where we're just going to earn a billion dollars and then start our own foundation. We, most of us now, I shouldn't say most, but many of us now, and enough of us now believe that you should have commercial viability with cultural imperative in tandem. Uh, and that is of course, indeed what we build with my fund. That's indeed what we build with all of my companies. You have to have the great and good at once. I couldn't agree more. Your path winds you back to Google in a different role. And I think you also did some advisory work for Snap. Can we talk about what you do there with Google on their 21st Century Marketing Advisory Council? And you also did some work, I recall, on the Yellow, Inc Yellow Incubator Program at Snap. Yeah, uh, Snap is even easier to talk about because that, that work continues. Uh, very privileged to support Mike Sue, who's in Gold House. Uh, he's the chief over there at uh, Snap's Incubator. Uh, I love them especially because they just invest in all these like very next-gen, quirky um, sort of blends of content and technology. Um, so just have the privilege of advising a bunch of you know the companies that are over there. So that's that one's really easy. Uh, Google's marketing board, I don't belong on. If I get another board like Bailbob that I look around and think, these are all my elders, what am I doing here? And so because of that, I prepare probably five times as long as any of them and speak 10 times as much because I have to earn my spot. <laughs> um, but um, no, I mean, Google's marketing board does not look like me. Uh, it's everyone else is a CMO or chief of major agency or, or all that. And then there's Bing. Um, but um, no, it's, it's a great privilege to be there, not only to be one of the two Asian voices, but also by far the youngest voice, I'd say. Um, and, and I try my best to be helpful there. Uh, I adore Google. It's, uh, I probably shouldn't pick favorites, but next to the Walt Disney company is my favorite company. Um, I think there's just so few, with not only the scale, but the heart um, that they can, and the whimsy that they consistently have. Um, and I think the 21st century marketing board, which is ultimately a multicultural marketing board, uh, is an indication of their longstanding commitment um, to engaging new audiences audiences in an authentic and empowering way. Um, and so, yeah, that's, 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 been a, that's been an incredible privilege to be on. Uh, and I always feel bad speaking up. Um, it's got to be a good room to be in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like imposter syndrome 101. And like, everyone's so polite. They're like, no, you're so valuable. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, you're lying to me. Uh, but no, it's, 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 it's great to be there. But I, I think most importantly, it's, it's great to learn. Uh, and it's great to contribute. Um, so, yeah. Well, you want to be in the room where it happens. And you, you've done that. So let's talk about your work around uh, um, and multicultural film. Um, that's an incredible story also. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, I can't believe you're going through my resume. Listen, if we were going through your resume, we'd have to make this a three-part episode. This, uh, this no, is no, a couple no. slices of the uh, pie here. No, no, no. no. Uh, no, Om is, Om is a great privilege. Uh, Om, in, uh, in terms of my interests in the holding company, sits on the story side. Um, uh, Om is specifically about investing in a particularly first-time multicultural filmmakers who tell multicultural stories that reshape mass culture. Um, its chief is uh, known as Nina Yang Bon Jovi. She is the most decorated producer in Sundance Film Festival history, and she launched the careers of everyone from Ryan Coogler with Fruitvale Station, who's now the most lucrative Black director of the last decade, um, particularly because of Black Panther, uh, all the way to Chloe Zhao, who is the most uh, decorated director in a single award season for Nomadland. Um, she has among, if not the best taste 
for a producer who not only finance, but is also an on the ground producer and finding filmmakers who've never been given a shot, who have an incredibly specific and incumbents would argue narrow storytelling perspective. But for those of us who are in it know that niche is what is truly universal um, or, or is where it begins and can deliver what I call another Trinity. Um, films that are not only culturally essential, but also commercially profitable and critically acclaimed. Um, it is so hard to get that trinity right in Hollywood. Usually you'll have just big box office blockbusters that suck critically, or you'll have great critical fare that makes no money, uh, or you'll have, you know, great fare that makes a lot of money, but it doesn't say anything about culture and move us forward and is forgotten next year. Um, we luckily try to do all three. Uh, and so our last film is called Passing. Uh, it's about two black women, one of who passes is white, um, starring Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. Uh, Ruth won so many different awards for her incredible supporting actress, really, and I should say co-starring performance from the Indie Spirit Awards to otherwise. Uh, it was the second highest non-white acquisition in Sundance Film Festival history. So that's a commercial prowess. And I think of probably greatest importance, uh, especially after the summer of reawakening for so many of us in Black Lives Matter, it showed that um, racism against and inside the Black community is not, of course, one-dimensional. Um, and, uh, and it did so through this just incredibly luscious palette of Black and white three or four film. Um, and so, yeah, that's our latest film. Uh, we have two to three others going to production this summer that are equally, if not more seminal uh, for other communities. Um, which we're so excited about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very, very simple formula. We believe that multicultural voices should be told. Uh, it's not a sort of, you know, log line for culture. It's really just also a commercial imperative because you're going to find new things through new, you know, new communities that have been shut out. Um, and because of Nina's leadership, we can get the sun at the highest, highest levels. Um, so that's yeah. all. It's an incredible journey from where you were, thanks to that, program that Marissa created that got you in the door at Google and then going on and leading the YouTube early iteration of the creator economy. Now, all of a sudden, 10 years later, well, not so all of a sudden, you're shaking up Hollywood. That's got to feel pretty good. We're trying. I, I think like, I don't know. I feel like I'll, I don't know, how do I say this? Uh, I, I don't know what laurels are and I'm never content. And so, so Every, every time we launch something, like my partner hates when I can do this. Like we like we just launched this great fund. that's like so cool and like so thoughtful and like press has been great. But then, but I'm already on to like phase two. Like it's just like not enough. And so, so yeah, so like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think about anything as like, I don't know, reshaping or feeling good or all that. I'm just like, I don't know. I'm just like kind of here to do things. Um, but I do have a plan. Uh, whether we get to the end of that plan is what keeps me up at night constantly. Uh, and so, and whether my mother gets to see the end of that plan keeps me up constantly before she goes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, Lauren. We're, we're just, I don't know. We're doing the best we can. Well, we well it's you get you're certainly you know you know getting a lot of shit done, and it's really impressive. So let's now turn to Gold House. Give us the early days. I don't know the Gold House origin story. So Gold House started because a couple of us were in a room of Black and Israeli leaders, uh, as well as actually older elder Chinese leaders. Um, these were Kevin Lin, the founder of Twitch, Janet Yang, who is the highest ranking Asian in the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, and director John M. Chu of In the Heights to Crazy Rich Asians, soon to be Wicked. 
And we looked around and we wondered why are Asians not thriving as well as the black and Israeli di- uh, communities or the African and Israeli diasporas. And we realized it was actually not societal barriers. It was, it was because of our own community. We were stepping on our own feet. Um, there's, a, there's a trope that we often say that the first community to shit talk Asians are actually Asians. Um, and it's for a variety of reasons um, that we can go into, but uh, we basically realized that was not acceptable anymore at an inductive level. At a deductive level, we also realized our privilege. We are the world's majority. We're four and a half billion people. We're the fastest growing population in this country. We will be the second largest minority in 15 years. We outspend basically every other demographic in almost every single way, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I looked at this and thought, okay, well, we have an immense amount of power. It's just not home. It's not even consolidated, nor is it home. And so I thought, okay, well, who is actually going to consolidate the world's majority in a way that is productive and also inclusive, right? Um, And there was just no entity. A lot of the entities that existed were basically run by like my uncles. um, And I I specifically mean uncle in terms of male and Chinese, which is not the Asian diaspora at all, right? Um, And and yeah, and that was just not okay. I think the, the third impetus was I was the most junior person in this conversation by far who probably had the most free time uh, or, or was willing to make the most free time because everyone else is just like a, you know, a unicorn or the apex of their industry. Uh, and so, yeah, I started with Kevin meeting with 300 of the top Asian leaders across the country, um, C-suite executives and neighbor publishing houses, Olympic champions and so forth. And we, we asked them definitively, if you were to create the Asian mafia, what would it look like and why? Um, and everyone said the same four things. Number, everyone said the same four things. And, and this was really validating to my YouTube experience because everyone's the same six things. Um, they said, one, none of us know each other and we don't support each other. Number two, we hate how we're represented in media. Women are overly sexualized, men are overly emasculated. Third, none of us are in, the C- in C-suite offices, right? Or cer- there certainly are not enough. Many of these people know this is somewhat controversially as the bamboo ceiling. And then fourth is we have no political power, partly because of the first three. And so we said, all right, well, we're going to start fixing the first three just because politics is a totally different beast. Uh, fast forward four years, uh, almost four years now. Um, it's really three and a half. Um, but uh, we built the largest collective of API cultural leaders. We are now the first API call for every Hollywood studio, TV network, and streaming platform where we do everything from culturally consult on the authenticity of scripts to product placement to marketing. And then third, we are now actively shattering controversially the bamboo ceiling through the largest founder network, the top founder accelerator, several founder industry focused tracks, as well as now the definitive API fund. Uh, Where does this all march to? I am not trying to build a world forum by Asians. I think a lot of people think that. Um, this is just because we haven't announced our, our plan, um, but I'm trying to build the Pacific Bridge with Goldhouse. So the idea is I'm trying to build the most reliable investment and distribution platform vehicle for people to go back and forth between North America and Asia, which are the two supercontinents I'm convinced are going to run the disproportionate percentage of the next five decades of the earth. Um, and this is already true. Uh, outside of that, it's really Brazil and Mexico, but I can only focus on so many continents at once. Um, and so we that is what we're trying to build here. Um, and it will be even more self-evident how we are doing that very, very soon. Fantastic. You know, all I can think of as we're talking about is... Uh, the statue in front of Cinderella's castle with Walt Disney and Mickey. And I'm trying to figure out where the statue of you is going to go. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like it's a theme, Hopefully nowhere. but I feel like you're going to get there, Bang. Oh, I appreciate it. No, hopefully nowhere. I, it's probably just on my mom's living shelf. No one needs to see a statue of me. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, no, I just think about like, yeah, I, I don't know. I like, like, I don't know. I, I, how do I say this? Uh, 
No, I, I think I think the the best way to answer this, Lord Schechner, is um, is Doctor the late Doctor Maya Angelou's uh, wisdom of people forget what you did or said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel, and it's difficult because honing and, and defining sensations is almost impossible um, just because they're highly transitory they're highly subjective to each of us so forth and so on but i think that's what i'm ultimately going for i, I think my statue is i'm just trying to go for a feeling that is evoked when i'm not here um now whether we get there we'll never know because i'll be dead uh but but i think i think that's ultimately what i want well it's a great line from hamilton which i'm not going to get right, but Lin-Manuel wrote a line about legacy is about what happens after you're gone. Yes. We often plant flowers. We rarely see bloom. Correct. Very good. Well, this was an absolute joy, Bing, and we are very excited to be working with you for Advertising Week next fall to really put you front and center um, and all the work that you're doing and, and to spotlight and highlight the tremendous work that your community is doing. I think we have a wonderful opportunity here to shine the spotlight on all of us. And uh, we absolutely love our growing relationship with you. Uh, I'm grateful to our friends, mutual friends at the 3AF for connecting us. Yes, yeah, 3AF. And thanks for doing this. I'm glad we got to talk to you at a particularly hot time as Gold House Ventures gets off the ground. Very exciting. Well, thank you so much for having me, Matt. Uh, and I'll, I'll see you very, very soon. Chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.